Welcome to episode 29 of Mike's Notes. Today, the start of the University of North Carolina's women's soccer team. Today's episode is a little different. It's a different topic. Maybe a new one to you. It certainly was to me. It's the story about the start of the University of North Carolina's women's soccer team. So why are we looking at this group of people in this podcast? And the reason is is because as I was reading the book that today's stories come from, I noticed a lot of trends and themes. And anytime I notice something that's true over time or over other domains, then I tend to think it's probably true over many things. In fact, it probably comes close to being a universal truth. So what do I mean by this? In past episodes, we looked at something called home field advantage. And that was something we found that was true over time and over different domains. The 1919 Chicago Black Sox saw this when they played on the field and when they dealt with gamblers and when they were in the court of law. Each domain, sports, mafias, and the legal area required a different strategy instead of skills. And the players proved how adept or inept they were at each of those. So on the baseball diamond, they had home field advantage when it came to their skills. But in the court of law, they didn't. And those players acted accordingly. They acted to the best of their ability of skill, where they performed better when they had home field advantage and worse when they didn't. Warren Buffett puts it this way, quote, We don't look at something like that, like Amazon.com, and try to beat them at their own game. They're better than we are at that, and we aren't going to try to out Bezos, Bezos, end quote. Buffett's partner, Charlie Munger, puts it this way, quote, figure out where you have an edge and stay there, end quote. So the idea of home field advantage has been proved over investing, it's been proved in the court of law, it's been proved a hundred years ago, and it's still relevant today. So home field advantage is something that is true across domains and across times. So back to soccer. It helps to see things in different contexts, even slightly different ones. Today's quotes come from the book The Man Watching about UNC soccer coach Anson Dorans by Tim Crothers. In a 2013 interview, Dorans said the biggest problem is that soccer players don't actually watch enough soccer. This year for us was wonderful because uh, basically seeing the, the Spanish Giants knocked out by Dortmund and Bayern was wonderful because Dortmund and Bayern play the game the way we try to play it. Both teams press for 90 minutes and both teams try to play the game at a sprint and those are two of our philosophies. So to have these teams that obviously we're emulating at the highest level uh, succeed uh, is a wonderful message for my kids because what they're then seeing is, oh my gosh, this is the way, you know, Anson wants us to play. This is the way we try to play. Did you hear what Dorrance was saying there? He articulated the goal of this podcast learn what other people have done and succeeded with and imitate that and then remix it. In the same way there are lessons nestled in the professional leagues for the amateurs, there are lessons in the UNC women's soccer program for other organizations. It's a good one to look at too. UNC women's soccer is one of the best college programs in any sport across the world. They won 21 championships in 29 years, and we'll look at just one small vignette of the start of their program. Ready? One. If you want to start something, start by scratching your own itch. 
The story begins in 1976, when a high school junior named Laura Brockington has her leg broken in a co-ed soccer game, and Laura is tired of playing on the boys' team. While she was good, she only played about eight minutes a game when she had to play on the boys' high school soccer team. So Brockington decides to petition the school board to start a women's team. They okay it. In her senior year, she was the team captain. Then she went to college. Quote, When Brockington matriculated at UNC in the fall of 1977, she discovered that there was no women's soccer there either. Brockington met with UNC women's athletic director, Frances Hogan, about starting a UNC women's soccer club. Hogan patiently heard Brockington out. Then she told her to try field hockey. Brockington had never played field hockey, didn't want to play field hockey. So she scoured the UNC campus, searching for as many women as she could find who were interested in playing soccer. She got three dozen or so to sign a petition. She lobbied the school's sports council into funding gas for the team's transportation. Then she arranged for a local sporting goods store to provide a discount on uniforms. The UNC Women's Soccer Club was born, a team that would become known as the Pioneers. Soccer was my passion, and I saw no reason to give it up just because the sport didn't exist for women at UNC, Brockington says. I didn't do it for womankind. I did it for one woman. I did it for me. End quote. The greatest college soccer program in the United States was started because one kid really wanted to play soccer. Laura Brockington didn't have any other objective except for that. She scratched her own itch. When Barbara Corcoran talked about her experiences on Shark Tank, she noted that her investments are all earned by entrepreneurs that started out by scratching their own itch. Here's what she said. With all my entrepreneurs, they stumble on the idea in the activity of doing a regular thing. They stumbled on the activity in the course of doing their own thing. That was, they were doing something else and they saw a problem and they had to solve it and that's scratching your own itch. Scratching your own itch works because like legs on a stool, there are three actions that are necessary for this to happen. You have to be a missionary. You have to have a deep understanding of an issue or a situation and you have to have skin in the game. Let's quickly look at each of those. First, missionaries do better long-term work than mercenaries. And this isn't just good imagery or alliteration or in vogue techno speak. It's consistently true. The founders of Nike, Coca-Cola, Patagonia, and Vanguard all credit hiring people who believed in the cause. Second, Rockington also had a deep understanding of what it took because she had just done it. A year earlier, she had gone through the same approval process at her high school, and now she was doing it with the college that she was at. Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz say that all great founders are like that because they have a deep and wide understanding of their product, of their competition, and of their market. Finally, Brockington had skin in the game. The outcome affected her directly. She would personally win or lose whether or not the UNC soccer club got started. Skin in the game influences decision making. Compare the talking heads who tout tech stocks and sports strategy to the actual practitioners. If you can even instill part of this, it helps. Kelly Johnson, the engineer who started Skunk Works, the secret lab inside Lockheed Martin that came up with the stealth fighter, the U-2 fighter plane, and many other innovations, went up in a test flight once a year so that he could have the hell scared out of him and have the proper perspective for what he was doing. 
If you can scratch your own itch, if you can solve your own problem, you may be onto something. And luckily, it's never been easier than now to do it. Two. What struck me most about Brockington's experience was how time-intensive and labor-intensive it was. This is a quote from the book. Quote, Brockington knew she needed to prove that there was enough interest in the sport at UNC to merit a varsity squad. She spent as much time in the sports council office as she did in class, seeking out potential opponents by making phone calls or writing letters to 150 other colleges to identify which of them fielded women's soccer programs and which were intending to start them in the near future, end quote. So Brockington has started the club team, it's had a successful year, and now she wants to see if it's possible to make it a varsity team her second year of school. And notice how hard this is. She had to send out letters and make phone calls and get all of that information in the sports information office at her school. A lot of times we can look back and we think, oh, if only I would have done such and such about so many years ago. You always see this in and investing information where people say, oh, if you had invested $10 in Microsoft or Coca-Cola or Apple or any of these other things, well, it's easy to look back and say that, but it's never clear at the time, just like it's never clear now. Obstacles and ambiguity existed then too, just like today. What's relevant is that it's never been easier than now, even though it will always be hard. Kevin Kelly talks about this in his 2016 book, The Inevitable, and he writes this about the internet two decades ago. Quote, The internet was a wide-open frontier then. It was easy to be the first in any category you chose. Consumers had few expectations, and the barriers were extremely low. Start a search engine. Be the first to open an online store. Serve up amateur videos. Of course, that was then. Looking back now... It seems as if waves of settlers have since bulldozed and developed every possible venue, leaving only the most difficult and gnarly specs for today's newcomers, end quote. I love Kelly's imagery in that part, that settlers have bulldozed and developed all the good spots. Imagine the last beach you went to, and you can see all the high-rises, and, and imagine, oh, if it had only been 40 years ago, this would have been perfect. But it, it's never really like that. I mean, today you can't really compete with Facebook or Google or BuzzFeed if you wanted to create a consumer-facing website. But that's the same thing that Brockington faced. If she would have walked onto campus and wanted to recreate an existing team or existing club, she couldn't. That was too entrenched. Instead, she took the path that Kelly writes about. Here's Kelly again. Quote, but, but here's the thing. In terms of the internet, nothing has happened yet. The internet is still at the beginning of its beginning. It is only becoming. If we could climb into a time machine, journey 30 years into the future, and from that vantage point look back to today, we'd realize that most of the greatest products running the lives of citizens in 2050 were not invented until after 2016. People in the future will look at their holodecks and wearable virtual reality contact lenses and downloadable avatars and AI interfaces and say, oh, you didn't really have the internet or wherever, whatever they'll call it back then, end quote. So Kelly's pointing out here that it's never uh, been easier to do things, that we have access on Google to things that Brockington had to spend hours in an office for, but it was never going to be clear to us either. Even though things look like uh, they've all been invented, there are still options out there. We just need to create the new thing. 
For Brockington, it was a new sport. People actually didn't think that women could play soccer back then. It was an anomaly. Brockington was a pioneer. She had to find something new, and it's always a great time to find something new. New things are always hard, but have never been easier. 3. Make it easy for a decision maker to say yes. Okay, so here we have Brockington ready to present her case for a women's varsity soccer team. This is what the book says. Quote, When she was ready, she went over Hogan's head this time, directly to Bill Kobe. She entered her meeting with Kobe, armed with a roster and a tentative schedule, and anticipating a tough sell. She had no idea that Kobe was unaware that a UNC women's soccer club even existed. Brockington told Kobe about the interest in the club and about he could fund a women's varsity team for less than that of the cost of one football recruiting visit. Then she wielded her secret weapon. She just happened to let it slip that she'd been contacted by an attorney looking for a test case on Title IX, a law enacted in 1972 that encouraged proportional participation for female athletes at federally funded universities, end quote. So Brockington makes her case to the head athletic director, and what she does is she makes it easy for him to say yes. And decision makers want to make easy decisions. We all do, really. We are cognitive misers. We conserve uh, mental bandwidth and our decision-making stamina. A simple example of this is buying fast food when you're hungry. Simple thinking is that you're hungry, fast food satisfies your craving, it's easy, it's available, it's relatively cheap, boom, the next thing you know, you have fries and a Coke. Fast food is easy to say yes to. Those chains know the value of making it easy to say yes. When Brent McKay was talking about his site, The Art of Manliness, he pointed out that he gets high-quality blog submissions from a handful of people who have launched online careers because of their writings on McKay's site. When asked what they did well, McKay said they made it easy for me to say yes. They got the voice of the site right, he said. They formatted their posts correctly. They had the right word count, the right depth. They had looked at other posts that had been written and linked to those. They didn't uh, tread on areas that had been overrun. They didn't beat a dead horse. McKay said that the most successful contributors to his site, people that he pays well to write articles, made it easy for him to say yes. Another person who pointed out the value of this was Chamath Palihapitiya. He said the Facebook phone failed because he made it too hard for Mark Zuckerberg to say yes. Chamath said that it would have cost a billion dollars to create the Facebook phone, but that was too much money for a company that was still private. He lamented that if he had made it easier for Zuckerberg to say yes, then the chances of us having a Facebook phone in our pocket would be much higher. The problem was Facebook was still private. And it barely had a billion of cash in the balance sheet. It's a wrong timing. Well, it, he, Mark would have had to go public a year earlier. And I think in hindsight, he would probably say it probably wouldn't have mattered which year we went public. But at the time, it was a really important thing. And there was this whole culture developing in Silicon Valley about not going public and being private and you know all this stuff, which ultimately I consider now window dressing. Did you hear that last part, what he told Kara Swisher in their interview, that it was window dressing? With hindsight, we can see that Facebook may have overvalued staying private longer. But it was not easy to say yes because of the window dressing. There was too much noise around for 
Chamath to make it easy for Zuckerberg to say yes. There was too much other uh, sway and public opinion that a company like that didn't necessarily need to go public or want to go public or should go public. Laura Brockington also had a secret weapon, Title IX. The law that stipulates men and women at institutions that receive public funds should have equal opportunity to access a sport. Women's soccer was a way for UNC to be more equitable. Brockington didn't know it, but the man she was speaking to, athletic director Bill Kobe, was familiar with Title IX because he had been the Title IX compliance officer before he was the athletic director. In a sense, this law also primed Kobe to say yes. It was top-down pressure when Brockington was providing bottom-up pressure. Kobe was being squeezed to uh, create more women's sports opportunities. So when Brockington came to him with this idea, he saw somebody that had skin in the game, that was motivated, that could uh, do some of the legwork, or maybe had already done some of the legwork for him. It was easy for him to give the green light to create a UNC women's soccer team. Plus, Kobe had one other idea. Four. Kobe was not only thinking about satisfying the Title IX requirement, but also about surfing his way to a dynasty. A few years before Brockington entered his office, Kobe watched a friend's daughter play on the boys' high school team. There was no girls' team for her either. He thought that if girls were going to start playing sports like the boys were, then UNC should offer some of those sports. In fact, if they offered them soon enough, maybe they could be the best. Here's what the book says. Quote, he saw an opportunity for UNC to set the pace for an entire sport. Kobe had observed through his 21 years working in athletics that once a school established an athletic juggernaut like Notre Dame in football or UCLA in basketball, it was extremely tough to compete against it. What clicked in my mind was that maybe this is a time when we can get out ahead of everybody else and we can establish a tradition, Kobe says. I knew there were only a handful of women's soccer programs in the nation and that we had a whole lot of potential to build something special here. End quote. The idea of getting out ahead of everyone else is what we call surfing. It's an idea termed by Charlie Munger, and this is what he says about it. Quote, and when these new businesses come in, there are huge advantages for the early birds. And when you are an early bird, there's a model that I call surfing. When a surfer gets up and catches the wave and just stays there, he can go a long, long time. But if he gets off the wave, he becomes mired in the shallows, end quote. We use surfing because it's a better metaphor than first mover advantage. You can't just be first. You have to be first and be right. Surfing epitomizes that. It's getting to the beach in the morning and not getting knocked off the wave. It's having the ability to stay on the wave which is the metaphor we use for running your business well or running a soccer program well or doing whatever you do well in changing conditions. And that's exactly what UNC did. They were early on the women's soccer wave and they didn't fall off. They did it well. Within a few years of starting the program, coach Anson Dorrance had 11 full scholarships to offer players, something other programs didn't have. In fact, other schools didn't even have soccer programs at the time that Dorrance had 11 scholarships to offer. He recruited hard. He looked for the best players, and he brought them in. He made UNC an attractive place for women's soccer. And in Munger's terms, he stayed on the wave. He was at the beach early, and he stayed on the wave. B. 
Being first can help, but it doesn't guarantee success. First mover advantage is more motivation than strategy. Just look to the music industry and we can see a slew of examples of first movers who didn't last. MP3 wasn't the first file format or encoding technique. The iPod wasn't the first portable music player and iTunes wasn't the first music library. So just in that small little music segment, we see that just because you're first doesn't mean that you will last. You have to be able to stay on the wave. To recap, we touched on four things the best soccer program in the world did at the beginning. First, they scratched their own itch. Laura Brockington just wanted to play soccer. She was motivated and invested. Two, it's easier now than ever. New things will always be hard. Outcomes will always be unclear, but it's never been easier than today to try. Three, make it easy for a decision maker to say yes. In an upcoming episode, we'll dive into one of the best books on this, Getting to Yes. And number four, surf well. If you know how to surf and you're one of the first ones at the beach, you can ride the waves all day long. Don't lose that advantage and get mired in the shallows. Thanks for listening to episode 29 of Mike's Notes. Well, that's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave and take your book with you.